Remember, it is not just white landowners in rural Iowa who are concerned about these carbon pipelines. It is black Iowans in Des Moines, Cedar Rapids, Waterloo, across the state. It, are, it is indigenous Iowans across the state. Okay, it is migrant Iowans, black and brown folks across the state who are concerned about the, the harmful impacts that these pipelines will have because we know that environmental racism, okay, and, and the impacts of the decisions that are made here in this room yeah. affect black and brown and indigenous Iowans the most and they harm us the most. And we are demanding y'all listen to us, listen to your mission to ensure that you have safety and environmentally responsible utilities for all Iowans. Okay, not just to uh, to continue to pad the pockets of those who have put you in these seats. Okay, we know there are conflict of interest here, clear conflict of interest. We are asking you to ignore those and please listen to your mission and please, please do what is right for the people, for all Iowans. Hello and welcome back to For Land and Life, the Oakland Institute podcast. My name is Andy Currier, and I'm your host for today's episode, where we're going to take a look at the environmental racism of a so-called climate solution here in the United States. Summit Carbon Solutions intends to build the world's largest carbon capture and storage pipeline across the Midwestern U.S., despite fierce and sustained citizen opposition. In November 2022, the Oakland Institute released the Great Carbon Boondoggle, unmasking the billion-dollar financial interest and high-level political ties driving the project forward, despite opposition from a large and diverse coalition of indigenous groups, farmers, and environmentalists, rejecting the pro project as a false climate solution. The project intends to build a 2,000-mile pipeline to carry CO2 across Iowa, Minnesota, Nebraska, South Dakota, and North Dakota to eventually inject and store it underground in North Dakota. The promoters of the project fail to reckon with the growing body of evidence exposing carbon capture and storage, or CCS, as a false climate solution. CCS projects have systematically overpromised and underdelivered. Despite billions of taxpayer dollars spent on these projects to date, the technology has failed to significantly reduce CO2 emissions as it has not been proven feasible or economic at scale. On January 17, 2023, a coalition of community organizations in Iowa mobilized to deliver the Oakland Institute's expose to the IUB, Summit's lawyer, and Governor Reynolds at the Iowa State Capitol. The communities made their strong opposition to carbon pipelines clear and called for meaningful action. While media coverage so far is focused on the opposition white landowners in the path of the proposed route have to the pipelines, this project represents the latest instance of environmental racism as indigenous, black, brown, and migrant communities will bear some of the greatest risks if this project goes through. Today, we're going to hear from several leading activists fighting against this and other proposed carbon pipelines in Iowa. First off, we have Sikawas Christine Nobis who's the founder and executive director of Great Plains Action Society, as well as Mahmoud Fatil, Frontline's action director for Great Plains Action Society, which, for those who don't know, is a nonprofit advocating for indigenous communities throughout the Midwest. Well, welcome, Christine and Mahmoud. Let's get right to it. So what are the main concerns from indigenous communities about Summit and other carbon pipelines? Well, there are a number of reasons, Andy. Thank you for uh, inviting us and, and giving us a, a chance to speak here on the platform. A number of reasons uh, the indigenous communities are upset and concerned for these projects, uh, particularly the, the bad taste left in their mouth after recent projects such as, you know, the 10 year long odyssey of fighting KXL, um, the line three recent uh, situation up in Minnesota, as well as right here in Iowa, uh, you know, the uh, struggle against Apple that uh, really ran roughshod over a lot of the, the people, both the, the majority po population of Americans as well as uh, the indigenous communities by not you know, properly informing them and getting proper consent and uh, uh, working with the communities to ensure proper health goals and safeties were, were uh, ensured to those communities. Same situation here. There's a big concern for uh, transient workforce coming through uh, with a lot of people from out of state that have no ties to the community. Uh, it's been documented through research that there's a, a grave risk to indigenous women in particular, as well as to children, boys uh, for human trafficking uh, during these activities. 
uh, recently during the Line 3 project of the Minnesota, there was a sex trafficking sting and, and several Enbridge employees were involved in that. Uh, right here in Iowa, we, during a direct action in Dapple, had a young Indigenous woman who was solicited. Uh, an employee, as he was driving off the work site, stated, how much for the little girl? Um, you know, that's offensive on many reasons, but it's uh, a long history of that going on in the United States and it just continually being perpetuated by the fossil fuel industry. Uh, once we commodify the earth, we uh, begin commodifying people as well. So that's a big issue. Um, Thank you, Mahmoud. Christine, uh, is there anything you'd like to add about um, the dangers that these man camps have for indigenous communities? You know, it is proven, we have proven beyond a doubt that like um, there is an increase in violence in our indigenous communities when uh, man camps or temporary workforce housing units come through. Mm. This doesn't just apply to like pipelines, right? Like this applies to any type of um, large um, construction project that, you know, goes on in Indian country. So like, you know, even even if you're building like massive, you know, roads or highways um, or, you know, other types of extraction, mineral extraction, tree cutting, um, you know, mining, whatever. Um, and then even hunting camps, right? So, and then, and sporting events. So like wherever you bring in like large amounts of men into an area um, within Indian country, you often end up with increased sex trafficking um, and increased rates of uh, violence. Some of the stories are too horrid to even tell. It's really, really disturbing. Um, and the thing is, it's like, it's like not like these people, like the, the older ones, like, you know, the ones in their teens and twenties aren't wanting to go there sometimes as well. Like they go there on their own sometimes cause, oh, well, they're gonna party and oh, they're promising us, us, you know, a good time and like whatever. And then that's where then they get exploited and taken advantage of. Right. And what are some of the other issues that indigenous communities have with these projects? Primarily safety. These are much different than the traditional petroleum pipelines. Uh, they're known to be explosive. They have ductile fractures. Uh, there was an incident down in Satarsha and zero communication has been given to the tribes. Many of the tribes, such as the Omaha Nation and the Winnebago tribe of Nebraska, their reservations lie right along the path. Like literally as the pipe goes from Iowa across the Missouri into Nebraska, the uh, pipe runs almost parallel to the border of the Winnebago reservation. Yeah, I mean, already, um, you know, even cities like Des Moines uh, Sioux City, um, Waterloo, Cedar Rapids. I mean, even they don't have infrastructure that can deal with something like this, right? Because um, you need specialized vehicles that can drive um, without oxygen. And then you need, um, obviously, people with, uh, you know, that they're going to they're gonna have uh, masks and, and oxygen tanks, right? Um, to be able to be safe. Um, and so when we talked to Michelle Freelamere, for instance, who uh, used to work um, in that realm on the Winnebago Nation, like, uh, um, I'm not sure if she was an EMT or like uh, in the, on the police force, I think it was the police force. Mm. Um, you know, she had said something like, there's no way that like the Winnebago Nation is gonna be prepared for something like this, mm -hmm. right? So if we can't even have large cities with massive budgets like prepared for this, then how are we going to have small towns and reservations prepared? Right. No, that's that's really important to think about. And what you know, what happened in Mississippi, the Sarsia explosion, if that happened in a more densely populated area, um, I mean, it'd be unimaginable what, what the consequences would be. So to what extent has Summit meaningfully consulted tribes about this pipeline and gotten their um, consent and approval? Well, first of all, um, thank you for the question, Andy. The uh, Winnebago tribe was never really engaged in the same manner. Neither were the Omaha tribe, the Santee, the Yankton, or any of the other tribes along the route and the uh, tri-state area uh, that, that we're working with here in uh, South Dakota, Nebraska, and Iowa uh, throughout the Great Plains. 
um, we saw that they were in a mad rush to kind of put their information slash propaganda sessions out to the public and kind of spoon feed everybody all the benefits and why the projects need to be answered. And uh, we started reaching out to the Thipos, the tribal historic preservation officers of each of the tribal nations that find themselves along the Missouri, which subsequently is a, a major portion of the route as it traverses from Iowa into the greater Plains region. And um, we were able to secure finally an informational session and, and tribal meeting uh, with Summit folks. And they do actually have a uh, uh, tribal liaison uh, who attended the meeting, but oddly enough did not speak very much. Chris Hill, the uh, uh, main person who speaks during the informational sessions did most of the talking. They provided us a map, you know, uh, the Summit project map that was published out by EXP and it, it included the tribal nations, the, the sovereign nations along the route. Um, however, they were just grayed in areas and they were not uh, denotated by any type of name or anything like that. Uh, during that meeting, uh, we asked a very simple question uh, because it seemed like the concerns of tribal members didn't really matter. They just tailored the same speech that they had been giving around Iowa to other communities uh, and, and threw in some things that they thought would be attractive to Native Americans like, hey, we're going to have jobs available for you and things like that, which we all know from previous, uh, previous experiences. You know, yeah, initially when there's a build up, there will be thousands of jobs, but those workers will be brought into state from other areas. It's not going to benefit the local economy. In the end, it'll probably be a couple dozen people that have jobs, if that. And uh, so they always like to play the jobs numbers and use the unions out there. But uh, the reality of it is it's, it's a lot more risk than it is any type of reward for the tribal communities. And they felt very upset that they were last in line to be consulted. Uh, as sovereign tribal nations, the you know, treaty is the supreme law of the United States. And they, they do need to be consulted regarding projects that are in or on their historic tribal lands, cultural areas. And these projects, both Summit and Navigator, traverse the Missouri River, skirting right along the edge of the Winnebago Nation. During that meeting, we asked them on their own map to identify where the Winnebago Nation of Nebraska was located. Uh, the reservation, and they had no idea. Between the five representatives that were on the meeting, including their tribal liaison, Aaron, they had no idea where the, where the Winnebago Tribe of Nebraska's reservation is, which is the closest reservation to the actual project. Wow, I think that's a very clear example. Um, despite some of saying they've done all these consultations with indigenous communities, the fact they couldn't even locate the Winnebago Tribe on the map is it tells a lot, I think. Um, so with that in mind, Christine, do you think Summit actually cares about indigenous communities? No, not if, if not if like um, Bruce Rastetter is at the helm. <laughs> like I hardly doubt he even knows anything about indigenous communities. <laughs> you know, well, you know, Iowa was highly genocided and colonized because it's the only state that is bordered by the Missouri and the Mississippi rivers, right? It's absolutely like beautiful farmland um, in here or beautiful land that you can cultivate, you know, um, plants and um, indigenous folks were already doing that. They were already growing corn here and all sorts of things, but they were doing it in a sustainable way, obviously. And um, all of a sudden, you know, settler invaders came in and they were like, wow, amazing land, you know, like let's implement our colonial capitalist farming practices, right? Um, and so natives were really cleared out of here. The Meskwaki managed to stay, but they bought their land. So they actually have a settlement, not a reserve. Mm. So when it comes to Iowa, it's like, there's not like, you know, Iowa itself is, is like the, the actual like um, institution of Iowa itself is built on white supremacy and, uh, you know, still, still um, perpetuating it. So I, you know, it wouldn't be surprising that Rastetter doesn't know anything, you know, like it's, he's typical of many people, right? He's typical of, uh, of, of, of any Iowan that was brought up, um, <clears throat> given no information in, in school, um, or anything past, you know, you know, 1800 or 1900 about natives. So we've talked a bit about the dangers of the pipeline itself um, and the route of the pipeline. What about where the carbon is, is going to be stored? I think as our report points out, uh, you know, this has never been proven at scale. So what are some concerns specifically around environmental racism about where they're going to store this carbon in North Dakota? 
add that uh, the uh, planned area of sequestration for the carbon uh, dioxide in North Dakota is, is centered directly between the northern border of Standing Rock Reservation and the southern border of Fort Berthold Reservation. So it continues along the legacy of this country engaging in environmental racism. If any of these ill effects were to actualize or become a problem for the local area, it would definitely affect indigenous communities. And once again, they struggle with having limited resources and trying to manage their, their nation's affairs and being plagued with several issues, living in rural environments, not having access to, you know, state-of-the-art or, or top-notch healthcare often and things like that. So, and they want to have this thing built out within three years, which uh, again, we mentioned FEMSA won't even have regulations prepared until three years. So these are all big red flags for indigenous nations. This is part of the reason why the Winnebago tribe is engaged uh, the IUB in opposition and try to uh, formally submit an environmental impact uh, study uh, in part for the sequestration on the ground. Uh, it also has something to do with uh, Native Americans tied to the land and that there is uh, an entire eco ecological system uh, living underground. You know, what, what will happen if we start pumping thousands and thousands of metric tons of CO2 underground. We saw what happened with fracking and it was too late. You know, when they started doing all these injection wells down in Oklahoma, Texas, and so on, it created a lot of seismic activity. This is really a, a largely unproven technology. They've never done it on the scales that they're proposing for both of these pipelines. And, you know, once again, they're they're putting the, the burden or the uh, risk on, on communities of color that, that are ill-adapted or ill-prepared to fight back in meaningful ways because of lack of resources, a lot of other additional struggles going on in their communities, et cetera. Concerning um, another indigenous uh, perspective on the matter, um, you know, we have a lot of creation stories that come from underneath the ground. Um, and also, um, Vindaloria once said, like, our sacred sites don't, just don't live, like, on the land. They go to the center of the earth and then out into the universe. So, you know, like what's happening is like they will be uh, putting in a foreign agent, a toxic, toxic agent into the ground and it's going to upset like biomes um, that are exceedingly important, you know, to the functioning of our planet. Um, basically, they're injecting poison, um, you know, um, in, the, in the wrong way. It's, I mean, it's not necessarily poison, right? It's like, but they're injecting this gas back into the earth in a way that it's not supposed to be in there, right? right? Like it's supposed to be held within the roots of plants. It's supposed to be held within soil. Um, it's supposed to be like in the wood, right? Um, and so like, it just blows my mind that they want to construct this crazy contraption and you see what their plants look like, or you know what these plants look like. They're just like, they're apocalyptic looking, right? And then they want to just attach more more pipes and like, you know, um, upset more ground and like do this weird, you know, injection into the earth where we really could just uh, rematriate, um, you know, like uh, even 9 million acres of prairie in Iowa that wouldn't make a big deal because, um, and I say 9 million specifically, because there are 9 million acres of prairie in Iowa that could be uh, rematriated easily without even affecting farms. Hmm. Because right now there's, that's the amount of land that um, we call it like um, slopes and wetlands where farmers will plant on a slope that's above 9% or up to a riverbank or in a wetland knowing that those crops aren't going to succeed, right? But they get insurance for it. So, like, if we were to just say, no, you can't do that and rematriate all those areas, that would be 9 million acres of prairie that we could rematriate with roots that are 8 to 12 feet deep, which also would solve a lot of other problems we're facing here in um, Iowa, because we're the most biologically colonized state in the country, um, of, like, soil loss. We have massive erosion going on. We only have 60 harvests left before the soil is gone. Um, because of, like once you take the per like once you take those deep roots out, like the soil's just been washing away, right? right. Um, and so <clears throat> why can't we just rematriate that? And not only that, but let's be honest, 
The majority of farming that's going on in Iowa is for corn and soy that's monocropped, GMO, sprayed with pesticides, herbicides, uh, fertilizers, um, and it's it's for like uh, ethanol, the corn is for ethanol production and cattle feed and whatever, animal feed. And like, we don't necessarily have to do that, right? Like we could actually rematriate like a, a, a ton more of prairie just right. if we decided to be more efficient with what we're doing and stop making ethanol, um, you know, stop stop saying it's this bridge fuel because like, it's really not, it's become a fuel fuel, right? Um, and just like, you know, focus on renewables. And um, we could actually rematriate probably another, you know, um, I don't know, like five to 10 million acres, right? And so, one healthy acre of prairie sequesters five tons of carbon. Yeah, that's that's what jumps out is that it, it seems like it's being done to, you know, it's, it's kind of come out how carbon intensive ethanol production is with all the land use changes you mentioned. And then instead of addressing that by rematriating, they're building this huge web of pipelines to then store, I mean, it's 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 colonial capitalism it's 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 how colonial capitalists think how 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 they think right like they can't just leave land alone that's not like that's not like a that's not even on the table right like that's such a foreign perspective to them just to leave land alone well those are clear and strong closing words thank you christine thanks as well to mahmoud for joining us and sharing some of your perspectives um, what a lot of what was touched on is available in more depth in the Oakland Institute report, The Great Carbon Boondoggle, which is available on our website. There's also a link in the episode description. We're now going to turn and speak with Jalen Cavill, an organizer for the Des Moines Black Liberation Movement. Jalen, if you could just start by talking a bit about um, your organization. I'm an organizer with the Des Moines Black Liberation Movement and the advocacy director. I've been in that role um, since we started uh, in 2020, in the beginning of the summer of 2020. Our our group um, was formed out of the uprisings following the murder of George Floyd. Um, we began organizing protests here in Des Moines, um, advocating for racial justice, advocating for police and prison abolition, um, specifically advocating against the Des Moines Police Department um, and, and for their defunding. Mm. Uh, and so that's you know how we started the work. Um, back in 2020 and we've been been doing that work ever since and you know of course we're a racial justice and abolitionist organization um made up of you know young black organizers here in the city of des moines um we advocate for black folks all around iowa and you know advocating for racial justice takes us um in a lot of different spaces and and, and has us uh organizing for a lot of different issues because we know that you know, white supremacy and, and, and capitalism are so intertwined and all of these issues are so connected with each other. When we talk about racial justice, it includes, of course, police and prisons. Um, you know, it includes healthcare, it includes education, it includes our climate and our environment, right? So, um, you know, we definitely try to to be holistic, I guess, in our organizing and, and really fight for, for the, the liberation of all Black people. Right. And because of that, you know, kind of, interconnected focus and not limiting yourself to one area. So how did you first hear about the carbon pipelines being proposed in Iowa and, and what were some of the initial thoughts that you had? Yeah, I think, um, so I think I first heard about the pipelines a, a couple years ago. Um, so, you know, in, in the work that we do through the one BLM, we are connected and work a lot with a lot of different uh, organizations, a lot of different community activists and organizers around the state. And so we've been working closely with, you know, Great Plains Action Society since since we started our organization. Great Plains Action Society is an uh, amazing Indigenous-led um, organizing group here in Iowa. And so we've done a lot of work with them, um, you know, fighting for racial justice, fighting for, for the liberation of Black folks and for Indigenous folks. And so I think I first heard about the pipelines um, from Sakawis, actually. Uh, um at, at great plans action society they started to do some informational events i know they were doing sharing a lot of stuff on social media um and, and having like some virtual uh town hall type events where they were explaining what was going on with the pipelines and i know folks like sakawis and some other organizers 
here in Iowa who have been engaged in pipeline fights in the past, you know, with the Dakota Access Pipeline. Mm. Um, and, and so, you know, it's it's something that, that I'm aware of and, and opposing pipelines is, is something that I, I think is super important. Like I've known folks who, you know, a couple of years ago were driving up to Minnesota for, for the Stop Line 3 protests. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, when I heard obviously that they're, you know, again, trying to build pipelines through Iowa, um, you know, I was immediately concerned and immediately um, wanted to, to be involved in, in taking action against these pipelines and trying to stop that from happening. Right. And, you know, you mentioned how indigenous groups have really taken the lead opposing pipelines in the past. In this case, you know, the opposition to Summit's project has really, from primarily white landowners, has really dominated media coverage so far. Uh, you know, why do you think that that is? Yeah, um, I mean, so the 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 big fight i guess and how the framing has been around the pipelines is definitely been focused on white landowners like you said and it's been this argument over eminent domain which has been you know the main argument used against the pipelines um is that these private companies like summit should not be able to use eminent domain to take people's land and then use that for for private purposes to, mm. to make profit and for their companies um which you know is a, an argument i of course agree with I don't, you know, that's not what, what eminent domain should ever be used used right. on. And I think eminent domain has obviously been abused throughout the history of this country, and especially to the detriment of black folks. When we think of the city of Des Moines and, and cities all across the country right here in Des Moines, um, they build, they use eminent domain to take black folks' homes away from them. And there was an entire black community here on Center Street. Um, and, you know, I had family who lived there, grandparents who lived there, whose homes were taken away using eminent domain and, and they were bulldozed so that they could build a freeway through it. Um, so, you know, I'm definitely uh, sympathetic and understand the argument against eminent domain abuse. I think it's awful and, and I think it's a strong argument to make. Mm -hmm. um, I think we see that as the main argument because we are in Iowa, a nine, uh, over 90% white state. Um, and, and, and the areas where they're trying to build these pipelines do go through you know, farmland and, and um, rural Iowa where white folks own own land and they don't want to see that land get taken away. Uh, so, and we're a Republican state, a, a red republic, deep red Republican state at this point, um, fully controlled by, by right-wingers. So, you know, if we want to actually have some sort of political wins, um, you know, sometimes the arguments do need to be framed in a way that actually uh, hits home and actually is impactful for folks who are making decisions. So I, I see that as a, a reason why eminent domain has been such a, a focus in this fight and, and why white landowners have been prioritized so much in this fight. Um, but I think it's also, uh, I, I think it's also a problem because mm -hmm. white landowners are not the only people who will be affected by by these pipelines. In fact, the black folks, um, you know, migrant folks in Iowa, indigenous folks, um, they're the ones who are really going to face the brunt of of and are facing the brunt currently of, of the ongoing climate crisis that we're facing and it's only going to continue to get worse especially with projects like these pipelines and so it's really important i think that you know frontline communities black communities brown communities indigenous communities uh, are, are allowed and have a voice in this fight um and are acknowledged as, as being stakeholders and, and people who really matter and, and whose voices are, are really important when it comes to the impact that these pipelines will have in the state yeah, I've, you know, I've heard a lot of the white landowners, you know, just cannot believe that eminent domain could be used in this way. And I think in most of their cases, they're completely unaware of how it's been used traditionally. Um, you mentioned your own family, um, how it's been used to take land from black and brown communities um, across the U.S. And so, you know, I think it's, it's probably not as as uh, surprising as a thing that's being done now, but it's 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 definitely something that should be opposed regardless of, of whose land. Um, so I interviewed a member of the Winnebago tribe when we were writing our report and, and she said something that's really stayed with me. Um, so the fear is not if pipelines will rupture, but when they will rupture. And the impacts of a CO2 pipeline rupture are catastrophic, um, as we saw in Mississippi. Could you just talk a little bit about what happened in that case and, and how it relates to environmental racism? Yeah, for sure. And this is, I think that quote is, is spot on. Um, and I think that the you know what happened in Mississippi is something that I always try to to bring up whenever you know discussing the the dangers of these pipelines here in Iowa and, and really like trying to get folks to wrap their heads around how harmful um, this this really will be. 
Um, because yeah, what happened in Mississippi is is absolutely awful and horrifying. If if you read, you know, actual accounts of, of folks on the ground experiencing, um, you know, the aftermath of what was a, a rupture, an explosion of, of the CO2 pipeline in Sartatia, Mississippi, um, you know, the, the pipeline ruptured and, and, you know, toxic CO2 gas spilled out of the pipeline and into the community. This is a community that was, I think, over 40% black. Mm. Um, and, and so folks, folks were first, you know, not aware Right when when you have this this CO two gas that's just leaking out in into the atmosphere into your community, folks are not aware even that that's happening. Um, you know they don't smell it, and they don't they don't taste it. Right. Um, you know I, I saw reports of of how it was impacting people's vehicles, people trying to drive out of the situation, and their mm. cars would either not start or or just cut off completely because they don't have oxygen in the air. Um, and, and and people passing out. Right. I know many like dozens of people were sent to the hospital many people were left permanently disabled um you know i think from reports i read folks say that it's honestly a miracle that no one died right. in that situation um and 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 this was 2020 that this happened right like right. this is very recent um and and these are the exact this is the exact same infrastructure the exact same technology that they want to build throughout iowa um, and, and we see that it's it's not safe. Um, it's proven to be not safe. It's proven to be disastrous, in fact. Um, and, and it's it's untested technology. And, and they want to build three of these pipelines through Iowa. You know, it's not just Summit. They want to build, Wolf wants to build one, a Navigator wants to build one. They want to have three of these CO2 pipelines running through our state, running through communities uh, who, who will be impacted if, if a rupture occurs, like in Sartatia, right? They want to run a, a pipeline right through Fort Dodge. Um, you know, in the flats of Fort Dodge, which is, you know, historically has a, a large black population, a, a low income black population through the flats of Fort Dodge. Um, and we know that these companies, corporations, Summit and, and these other pipeline corporations do not care uh, about, you know, the, the communities that they're running these pipelines through. They don't care about, you know, the health impacts that these will have. They don't care about when these pipelines do rupture, uh, you know, the devastating impacts. That, that it will have on 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 community members here in Iowa. They they just care about their profits. Uh, so I think yeah, it's really important to continue to to uplift what happened and talk about what happened in Mississippi as a warning to folks. Like this will happen here in Iowa if we allow these corporations to continue with their plans to build these pipelines. You know, we will have a situation like in 2020 what happened in Mississippi, and there will be people who, you know, are 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 left permanently disabled or could die mm -hmm. because of it. Yeah, I remember the one of the emergency response directors said something about, you know, if the wind had shifted even slightly, you know, it could have been led to even more of a disaster. And, you know, just taking that risk again just seems incredibly irresponsible. Um, you mentioned Fort Dodge as a community um, that will be near a pipeline route and, and some other um, black and brown communities that will be near these routes. So because they'd be in danger, especially in the case of a rupture, are you aware of any you know, consultation that's been done to kind of inform these communities about the risks of the pipeline and, and, you know, try to educate them about the project or even, you know, get their input on what would happen? I'm, I'm not. I mean, at least from, you know, official mm -hmm. official sources, right, from from these, these corporations, from Summit, from from the counties. No, I, I've not heard of an intentional outreach being done to these, you know, frontline communities who will be impacted from the pipelines. I've heard a lot of outreach being done with like what we mentioned, white landowners, right, who, who are concerned about eminent domain abuse, right? They, they have a lot of town halls and a lot of informational sessions um, where white landowners are, are specifically catered to. And, and you know, sometimes I'm, I've been told by people who have attended some of these that white landowners are told they're the only ones allowed to talk at the meetings. <laughs> like their voices are the only ones that matter in, in, this, in this conversation, which we know is not true. Um, and so I, I think that that is 100% not happening. It, it needs to be happening. Um, uh, I, I think, you know, I, I do see that effort being taken by community organizations, right? People on the ground who, who actually do care about these communities, you know, folks like Great Plains Action Society and, and other organizing groups um, who have been intentional about setting up meetings, setting up community meetings. I know there's plans um, to, to drive around Iowa and, and, and have town hall type meetings with some of these frontline groups, mm -hmm. um, but none of that work is being done right by Summit or, or by 
um, the power players involved in this. They don't care. Um, like like we said, their 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 main focus is is on the white landowners. And when we talk about Fort Dodge and, and the flats, um, you know, like I said, it's a black low income area where these pipelines will will will, will run right through. Um, and, and not only that, but in Fort Dodge, there's you know a large prison. One of the largest prisons in the state is located in Fort Dodge. Um, and and that really really concerns me when we talk about the possibility of a rupture of a pipeline. And we talk about this pipeline running by, you know, Fort Dodge Prison. I, I have friends who are incarcerated in Fort Dodge Prison who I communicate with. I was the one who who let them know about these pipelines and the, and the fact that they might, you know, build these pipelines in Fort Dodge. They had not heard about them, them at all. Hmm. Um, and, you know, he was, they started sharing information um, throughout the prison and, and letting folks know about this. And, you know, a, a ton of people in there are concerned about this and they have not received any information. And I... I really, you know, am, am, am worried because if we look at what happened in Sartatia and, and if that were to happen in Fort Dodge, right, a, a CO2 pipeline rupturing um, and this toxic gas being let out into the community and, and, and that gets into Fort Dodge prison, right? We know that the COs, the, the correctional officers and, and all the staff in the prison, um, they can leave. They can get out of that, that, that environment and they can get um, to fresh air and, and then somewhere where they're able to breathe. Mm. But the folks who are incarcerated, I, I can guarantee you are not going to be allowed to leave. <laughs> they're they're going to be stuck in those cells um, and, and could suffocate. So so that's something that really um, worries me a lot about the possibility of these pipelines being built through Fort Dodge. Yeah, I, that's the first, you know, I've heard of that risk. And as you said, it's, it's really unimaginable what the impact there would be and really inexcusable that that these communities and and these just different areas have just been completely left out of any kind of planning or you know much less any sort of like free prior informed consent that you would expect for a, a large infrastructure pipeline um like this 100 percent. we talk about environmental racism uh and, and i think a lot of folks forget that incarcerated like the, the incarcerated populations in, in these communities um are are on the front lines and will be the worst impact impacted and, you know when you look at what happened uh in katrina mm. with, with hurricane katrina in new orleans and what happened to to incarcerated folks there they were left to to they were left in, in a flooded prison um while, while everyone else let you know got out of there and, and so, you know, we've seen that happen throughout history when when these awful um, environmental disasters take place. It is, you know, incarcerated folks, poor black folks, poor migrant folks and, and indigenous folks who who face the, the real brunt of it and who are left behind in most circumstances. And that's that's what we're really trying to you know get more attention to and, um, you know, just make more people aware of that fact because um, it's really been overlooked in this case. Um, so to conclude, the Des Moines Black Liberation Movement has really joined together with a broad coalition to oppose these projects you mentioned alongside Great Plains Action Society and others. What about this struggle gives you hope, you know, despite the political connections, the wealthy investors behind Summit that are detailed in their report? You know, despite that, what, what gives you hope that their plans can still be stopped? Yeah, it's tough. Like you said, the wealthy investors, we, we know the, the political corruption um, is, is very deep when it comes to these pipeline projects. You can, you know, I've, I've, if folks look at the Oakland Institute report and, and some of these other um, reports that have been released, you, there's, you can literally draw a whole visual map of all the political corruption and all the players involved and how they're all connected and getting money from one another. <laughs> so it, it is really, uh, can be hard, I think, to to be hopeful and, and think that we're gonna be able to stop this plan when all the powers that be in this state are fully invested in it, especially when you think about the fact that like, yes, opposing the pipeline is a some so something that gives me hope is that opposing the pipeline is a nonpartisan fight mm. right like we've already talked about these these white landowners a lot of right wingers a lot of trump supporters a lot of um you know and then you on the other side there's ab black abolitionists who who are, are 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 fighting for the same issue to stop the pipelines um so i think that that can you know can provide some hope knowing that we can have a broader coalition that you know we'll probably not agree on most issues but can can come together hopefully to try to stop the pipeline um but then i i know this wasn't your question but i get discouraged too <laughs> knowing that the 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 fight 
to build these pipelines is also across party lines. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this is not just a, a Iowa GOP project. Like, yes, Kim Reynolds and, and her IUB that she appointed and Terry Brandstad and, and, and the rest of them are, are all, you know, Republicans. Um, but at the same time, there are many Democrats who support this plan. You know, the AFL-CIO, the labor union here in Iowa, came out and supported the plan because they think it's going to give them some good jobs to build the pipeline. Um, you know, we we confronted uh, the one of the attorneys who is representing Summit in this case, and he is a, a high a high donor for the Iowa Democratic Party. Mm. He's a liberal. Right. He's a, a big Joe Biden supporter. He tried to tell us how could this plan be bad if Joe Biden's EPA approved it. Right. <laughs> so so that that can be tough knowing that, like, there are so many Democrats that think that this is like they're 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 either drinking the Kool-Aid of the greenwashing, thinking that this actually is good for the environment and this will help stop emissions or whatever else. Um, and then there are others who don't care because they also are just invested in patting their pockets and, and making profit. So that can be tough. Um, but I think, you know, the the, the folks who are oppose the pipeline are definitely, our numbers are greater than the folks who support the pipeline. Like mm -hmm. the folks who support the pipeline might have more more money than us and they might be in more positions of power than us. Um, but last I, last I saw was 80% of Iowans uh, are against using eminent domain to build these pipelines, which is the only way they're gonna get built really. Um, so, you know, that's, that's hope right there that 80% mm -hmm. of Iowans are, are against these plans. Um, the fact that we have, you know, Republican legislators introducing legislation trying to stop this, um, you know, can provide some sort of hope, I guess. Um, but really just the organizing and the folks who, who are involved on the ground, um, some of these frontline communities like we're talking about, the amazing work that Great Plains Action Society has been continuing to do, um, and, and some of these other folks you know, just across the state who are so dedicated to showing up and continuing to fight against these pipelines. You know, I think we, we will be able to stop these pipelines. I, I do think that is that is possible, and I think we can do it. Thank you so much, Jalen, for joining us today. Uh, for listeners who want to watch the full testimony that Jalen gave to the IUB, as well as the report delivered to Summit's lawyer, which I recommend you take a look at, uh, that's available on the Oakland Institute social media as well. Our final guest of the day is from the Iowa Migrant Movement for Justice. Alejandro Mergio Ortiz is going to now share some of the concerns that migrant farmers would have with these projects, as well as some broader issues that they face in Iowa and as they relate to environmental racism. Yeah, so my name is Alejandro Mergio Ortiz. I'm the community organizer with Iowa MMJ, that's Iowa Migrant Movement for Justice. Um, and still a huge part of what we do is immigration legal services. Um, so you know, we have um, DOJ accredited reps and lawyers on staff um, who were a part of those two organizations. And I was hired on in 2020 uh, to kind of, um, you know, have an actual organizer working on uh, the various issues. Um, you know, in particular at the time, um, this would have been, you know, peak uh, early pandemic um, when, you know, I got largely involved and that was due to, you know, some of the issues we were hearing in meatpacking. So the worker stuff, um, particularly meatpacking, and, you know, since then in, in many other fields, uh, is, is much of what I do, you know, communicating with workers, but also, you know, advocacy um, in a more broader sense when it comes to immigration um, advocacy at the local, state, and federal level. So there's been so much you know, media coverage on opposition to this project from landowners, primarily white landowners, um, whose mm -hmm. land would be impacted by the pipeline. Have you heard any concerns from farm workers um, about this project once they've kind of learned about what it would be and the risks it would have? I, I would say that, you know, it's, especially at the point where we're at now, where, you know, we're doing that outreach, um, uh, I would say that that's, uh, you know, we're still at the education piece. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say that, you know, we don't have, unfortunately, because that work hasn't been happening, we don't have an organized uh, workforce when it comes to, uh, you know, these spaces. A lot of these workers are temporary. So, you know, when you have some of those conversations, it's, you know, it's not a priority for understandable reasons, uh, you know, whether it's this or whether it's workplace issues like uh, the pandemic and the many folks that are meatpacking were, were dying, you know, of course, folks know that when there's issues and, you know, they want something to happen, but at the end of the day, the most important thing is being able to bring 
you know, uh, you know, money back home, especially if you don't have status and where you don't have as much to risk. I mean, you're not able to risk as, uh, as much because it means so much more to, you know, to risk. Um, so it's, you know, it's a, it's a difficult issue. Uh, one where I do think that, uh, when we have those conversations and, and say, uh, someone that, you know, their intention is to live there permanently. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, their health, the health of family is incredibly important. Um, but I think, uh, largely because that work hasn't been happening, um, you know, we're, we're, we're really just at the beginning stages of making sure that this information is available for folks. Hmm. Um, so for context, could you describe some of the current conditions that migrant farm workers face in Iowa? Yeah. And, you know, when we're talking about farm workers specifically, I mean, this is an industry that uh, not only is just very like under, like, uh, like there isn't much protection for workers, whether that's anything from like PPD to uh, workers' rights. Um, and again, uh, just in general, often very isolated from, you know, much of the rest of the state um, and from the resources that exist maybe in some of the major cities. Um, so it's even difficult for us to reach some of the, the workers out there. Um, but what we know is that, you know, these are workers that are already in dangerous conditions, um, overworked, and one where, you know, overtime pay is actually, like they're excluded from overtime pay in, in many of these uh, industries. So already are very, you know, in very vulnerable situations, already, again, very dangerous situations where the environmental impacts of not only this, but many of the many ways that we're destroying the ecosystem here in Iowa are impacting them directly and are in the front lines of that. Uh, you know, again, in these very dangerous uh, working conditions that, you know, only get worse than when we introduce these new risks that, you know, seem to be very interconnected with uh, these industries that, you know, very specifically hire migrant workers. Now that's, that's very helpful to hear more about and kind of understand, you know, the current conditions they face, because if these pipelines are built, there's all this necessary training and protective equipment that you would need in mm -hmm. order to respond to a disaster. And, you know, you were mentioning, you know, not even receiving PPE, it's very unlikely they would be, you know, put in a position where they would be able to respond to a uh, pipeline rupture. They would probably be the last to hear about it. Right. And so in addition to risks while working, um, are you aware of risks for farm workers in their own communities, given the pipeline routes? Um, are there any known cities or towns? You mentioned some meatpacking towns that have a high proportion of migrant farm workers near proposed pipeline routes. Yeah. And, and, you know, with, uh, you know, as we're still learning, you know, I mean, I know that there's definitely like maps and stuff and, you know, there's information out there about those routes. We also know that that can change and that could mean changing uh, to impact even more communities of color. But right now we're seeing, you know, maybe Storm Lake, uh, my hometown Sioux City, Ottumwa, Denison, those are all huge, uh, you know, communities where uh, migrant workers are and uh, seem to be in one way or another in, in those routes. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's going to definitely be impacting those communities and in folks' backyards and, you know, given the history of our state and the way that they communicate these types of things, not only to the general public, but more in particular to uh, migrant communities, how they respond to crisis when, you know, it's migrant communities that are being impacted. We know that the state isn't going to prioritize those communities and, you know, it's going to end up falling onto the community itself to, you know, be able to, uh, you know, come together either to uh, not only, you know, prior to the, the pipeline and ideally doing so to to push back against it but also you know if this were to happen or if there were to be a disaster uh these communities again will be the last to be communicated with um and especially in an effective manner that uh you know is culturally uh competent right and so to your knowledge there's been no consultation so far um from summit or the other pipeline companies with farm worker communities i cannot imagine i have not heard of any um and there's no i i can't say for sure but i am fairly confident that there hasn't been um you know maybe with their employers but that doesn't mean that that's going to make it to their workers right and so does this environmental racism does this surprise you or is this something that's been experienced previously 
No, I mean, this is something that we experience on a daily basis, um, you know, and more specifically when it comes to major tragedies, uh, you know, the, the derecho, for instance, um, you know, the response was abysmal, especially when you're talking about, you know, the, you know, the refugee communities that we you know in, in some of the apartment complexes that uh, were, were very heavily destroyed by that storm and the displacement of those communities, the resources that were available, um, you know, we were, we had folks and, and even I was out there knocking doors trying to deliver uh, resources that were given to us by the state and, and you know, coming to doors and, and being like, hey, this is what we have and being told, well, this is what I need and you don't have that. And, and that's largely because those communication mechanisms that uh, the cultural education for, you know, decision makers just isn't there in this state. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's uh, not only in terms of how we communicate uh, or even if we communicate uh, these things to, to communities, but also just like knowing that, you know, these things are going to be, um, you know, if they get moved or even now, they're, they're going to be in, in migrant or just, you know, communities of color. And that's just something that we see, um, you know, across the board, food deserts, um, you know, what we see in, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the vast ways that uh, not only environmental, but just, you know, racism as a whole, but how it manifests in environmental racism, we definitely, definitely see that. And to conclude, you've spoken about this coalition opposing the project. What about you know, the effort so far gives you hope that it, it can be stopped despite the odds. Yeah, I mean, I think in part largely because I, I think that, you know, this the intersections of migrant justice and climate justice have largely been ignored um, in these movements. And I think that that is a, such a, like, a really important piece. And by putting that piece together, I mean, I think it's only a positive in terms of like the the strength that, that we can have if, um, you know, if we continue this work and really bring folks into that. Um, I think that's incredibly important, um, you know, not just in terms of like pushing back against the pipeline and, you know, getting people aware of what that's going to mean for our communities, but also in the long term when it comes to climate justice and the future of ag, um, especially given how, um, you know, interconnected big ag is and, um, you know, these large companies with, uh, you know, climate migration, climate displacement, and uh, just in general, the, you know, the workforce that these companies uh, have. And, and, you know, the, that very direct connection that is often very much ignored, making that connection, I think it's going to be um, only a positive. Mm. Thank you, Alejandro. Now, the report, The Great Carbon Boondoggle, which goes more in-depth on a lot that we've heard today, is available on the Oakland Institute website. Be sure to sign up to the reporter newsletter and follow us on social media to see how this develops. Um, The timeline for the IUB to decide on eminent domain is unclear at this time, but we will be providing updates as it develops and continue to work with communities on the ground to resist these dangerous false climate solutions. Thank you, as always, for listening. Until next time.